Hi, my name is Brooke Patterson and I'm a member of the BJSM editorial team. It is my pleasure today to introduce you to Dr. Nonsensar Mkambuzi. Nonsensar is a physiotherapist and completed her PhD in 2020 on the association of genetic risk factors with nociception and pain in chronic painful Achilles and patellar tendinopathies. She is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Cape Town. Today we're going to talk about her experience as the physiotherapist for the national rugby teams and the consideration of race, culture, gender and economics in sport and exercise medicine. Welcome Nonsensha. Now before we dive right in, can you tell us what you're working on at the moment for your postdoctoral research? My main postdoctoral research in the lab is on the menstrual cycle hormones and how they modulate risk factors for injury risk in ACL. We know that ACL injury risk seems to be higher in certain phases of the menstrual cycle, but we're not quite sure how or why. So my research is trying to figure out the how and or the why. My passion projects outside the lab, um, here I'm doing field studies on female African football players. We were trying to build a database um, on these players because none exists as yet. So we're doing injury surveillance at regional tournaments surveys on uh, various aspects of athletic performance, such as the menstrual cycle, hormonal contraceptives, ETC. I'm also leading a project that aims to establish ways of improving best medical practice in female football teams and other marginalized um, sports teams. And lastly, I am working with a, a group of engineers on trying to optimize sports bras, both in function and in cost for women with larger breasts. Now, can you tell me about your time as the head physiotherapist for the Zimbabwe national rugby teams, both men's and women's? The major differences, I think, between the various national teams that I worked with, not just the rugby teams, uh, are financial and they're largely investment related. So whilst Zimbabwe is a low income country, so that in general, one could say we there isn't much um, there isn't much money floating around to start with. Um, the amounts that go to sport are even less and the amounts that go to women's sports are even less. So when you take, for instance, the female teams, um, I might have like a bag full of medical supplies or close to a bag full of medical supplies for, for male tournaments, whilst I may not have one for a, for a female tournament. For a female tournament, I would get to go there by bus, regardless of, you know, how uncomfortable it might be, whereas I get to fly to the destination for, for, uh, for a male tournament. Case in point, there was this invitational tournament that uh, used to happen in South Africa. I don't know if it still does, and it was open to both males and female uh, rugby players. Uh, when I first attended it, I was with a women's team. Um, the trip was actually in doubt until the very evening before we were due to depart because the administration, the administrators were not sure if we would get the money to go there. So these ladies had been training for a few weeks now without confirmation of whether they might even make it to the tournament. Um, and then we got our travel confirmation like the night before and that confirmation meant we would be traveling by minibus so it was like more than 30 people cramped into a minibus with our kit and then having to do the bus trip from Zimbabwe to South Africa. 
and that was that is easily a uh, 20-hour travel, including the border, um, including the the time you spend at the border. And the medical kit there was mostly leftover stuff that I had from other teams and a bit of new items, but it wasn't it wasn't much. It wasn't as if people had actually put thought into this trip, like you know the girls are going to play at this tournament, we are going to make plans in this way. It was as if, you know, people just suddenly remembered and everyone was scrambling, even though people knew this happens um, every year. The gentleman flew to the trip. The second time I went to the tournament, I went with a male team. I flew, I had my bag of stuff and the girls had nothing and no one. So what that meant is I had to be the physiotherapist for both teams, but because I had gone there with a the male team, my first priority had to be the males and whatever supplies I had to had to be with the males. So that's it. That those are the main differences that I note between um, especially the rugby teams in in other teams, because when I started out, I was actually an intern for a male football club. And this was in one of the main uh, premier soccer leagues and it, um, attitudes there in football towards females in football are a bit restrictive. So for instance, they consider the menstrual cycle as a curse. So having your menses is a curse. Um, practitioners in male football, I believe in football in general, um, believe uh, that you, know, you can use lucky charms and it might boost your chances of winning and so forth. But then they believe that menses, you know, like having menstruation or having a menstruating person around the lucky charm is going to interfere with the lucky portion. So what that meant is I couldn't be in the dressing room prepping the players for certain matches because they didn't want to risk the chance that I may be on my period and interfere with their lucky charm. Um, by the end of a season, they'd kind of gotten used to me and they actually won the league that year. So perhaps I was actually their lucky charm. But everywhere we would go, everywhere we would travel with this team, people would, you know, shout things at me um, because they would consider me as a female who is not in her place. What am I doing there? I should be playing with the other females, so to speak. And in that same year, there was also another physiotherapist, a female physiotherapist who was working with another bigger team. And she even got a more torrid time. My club was smaller. So, you know, I kind of went under the radar for most of the country, but for her, she went to the big team um, and she was essentially run out of town because there was newspaper caricatures of her treating groin injuries. There was the fans making it known that they don't want her on the field because she'll interfere. With, um, with their potions that she would keep bring the luck to their team. So here was a well-qualified female physiotherapist who could do the job, but between the media and football administrators and uh, the fans, everyone is essentially running out of town uh, until she just left. So the team would rather have, prior to that, I think they had an ambulance technician as their physiotherapist, they would rather have someone with less qualifications than her, and they were happy with it as long as that person was male. So my experience of being a female doing uh, physiotherapy in a male-dominated sport was, it was a bit rough to start with. And you can imagine when you are, uh, when you are just starting out and you're thinking, this is going to be my future career, and this was essentially a baptism of fire. 
So you think, okay, you know what? I'm just going to perhaps put this on ice and then I'll go and work for, for, for female teams. Thank you so much for sharing those experiences. And I guess it really highlights the basis for your recent editorial uh, in the BJSM Out of Sight, Out of Mind and the Invisibility of Female African Athletes in Sport and Exercise Medicine. So why do you think this is and how can these marginalised populations be given a higher priority? Um, the first one has to be to understand that, um, of course, we do, Africa does more research on, and I suppose most low-income countries are going to settings, are going to do, are going to prioritize hunger and poverty and communicable diseases and all of those, because um, uh, according to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I don't know if it's still a thing, but you know, you have to take care of your physiological needs first. Otherwise, everything else is superfluous until you are well-fed and you have a good bed to sleep in. So I get it um, that in some of these settings in, in, in Africa, for instance, you had um, a volcano recently erupt and displace people. You have um, a conflict happening in the Tigray region right now in Ethiopia. So people are also fleeing and it's a humanitarian crisis there. You have um, people in Mali also having issues there. You also have, um, at some point, there was a locust, uh, uh, there was a locust invasion in East Africa. So of course, in those circumstances, it does make sense to be focusing on, on hunger prevention, preventing violence, trying to take care of this humanitarian crisis, all that. And I get it. I get it. But um, I think the problem then becomes that globally, Africa is then considered this monolith that, you know, because there is uh, a problem with uh, a possible famine in, uh, in East Africa, then that becomes the story of Africa, of the other 54 countries that have nothing to do with the famine. And because there is a possible humanitarian crisis in Tigray or another one in the DRC, then that becomes the story of the rest of Africa. And as a result, our global funding partners would then tend to think of funding priorities in Africa based on those. And I think we need to also understand that Africa is more than just, uh, it's more than just famine and poverty and hunger. Um, instead of just focusing our national agendas, our international agendas on what we are uh, on hunger and poverty, the things that we think um, quote-unquote African, we also need to understand that Africa is so much more than that and that we can do um, sports and exercise medicine research and indeed other forms of research in Africa. So if we took a common intervention such as a strengthening program that is perhaps shown to be effective in a white high-income population, one, should be, we be re reproducing these studies? And two, in the meantime, what can clinicians do with the, the literature that's out there if they're, they're seeing patients that don't um, fit that population? I think in, in, in general, science has a replication a study problem that if, if whatever study it was, we, it is very difficult to get a replication study funded in general. Um, and it is difficult to get it published because, I mean, we all have this whole novelty bias. We want something new. And mm. that gets even worse when you start 
breaking it down by population because we've shown that this population of white males has this particular incidence of injuries or this particular population of males um, uh, recovers this way from concussion or you know whatever phenomenon it is. If you want to come back and say, but hold on, what about females? What about youth? What about para-athletes? What about uh, indigenous athletes? How do, they, how do they fare with the same condition? then the first instinct from funders, for instance, is, well, the biology is the same, I suppose. Why, why would we be funding it again? And the challenge for that is most of these studies have not been done in, in marginalized athletes. Most of these studies have not been done in Africa. So it might not be novel to someone, but I am willing to bet that it is mostly novel. How can we be taking that study on 40 people in Brisbane as gospel when we haven't uh, shown if it, if it is the same in another, in another situation. If we take tendinopathy as, as an example, how interventions for the, let's say your physiotherapy ones, would have a specific difference between white Caucasian populations and other populations, at least from a biological perspective. I think what gets lost in not doing other populations and just using your regular white Caucasian population is that the sociocultural context, your socioeconomic context, those are not factored in into the treatment. So I think for the most part, that becomes the banana peel, that the biology might be sound by, for all intents and purposes, but it's the socioeconomic um, and the sociocultural that might, that might um, be that treatment plants are doing. So for instance, if you look at some clinical interventions, they may not be designed for a low middle income environment um, because perhaps they are designed to be uh, supervised or prescribed or be done by a professional. So the main assumption might be, for instance, that the person who is delivering this intervention is a physiotherapist. Zimbabwe has 0.24 physiotherapists to 10,000 citizens. So that's less than one physiotherapist per 10,000 citizens. Whereas I'm sure the number for Australia is much, much larger. Zimbabwe graduates less than 50 physiotherapists a year. Australia is going to be graduating, let's say 2,000 physiotherapists. So when you then have interventions that are designed on the assumption that you are going to have 2,000 physiotherapists per year, they may not work in an environment where you only have 50 physiotherapists graduating in a year. Um, alternatively, some of these um, interventions may make assumptions about the resources or equipment that you may have available. I remember trying to demonstrate a decline squat for my brother um, at home. And for the life of me, I could not find a single surface in the house, in the yard, in the garden, anyway, that could work as a decline board, you know. So that was something that even I had taken for granted. I live there and I'm the physiotherapist in the house, but I just taken it for granted that surely I'm going to find a decline board somewhere in, in this whole property, but I couldn't. So now imagine, and this is just a very low techy um, example of something that you think is going to be there, but it is not actually there. So here you are thinking, oh yeah, this is a patella tendinopathy intervention, you know, um, but then you don't have the decline board. Uh, 
Or you might have instances where we would, um, let's say for stroke rehabilitation, I remember we'd do sit and stand. So you are um, retraining a person to sit from the bed or from the chair to stand and then back again. But the primary assumption there is that when they go home, they will be sitting on a chair and they will be getting up from a bed to start their day. But not everyone has a chair in their house. It seems so very basic, but not everyone has a chair in their house. Some sit on the floor, cross-legged, uh, and some people don't have a bed to lie in. They actually sleep on mattresses or on the floor. So it's things like that where um, if we don't consider the socioeconomic environment, or we don't consider the religio-cultural environment that this intervention is supposed to occur in, then that might, uh, that might be a reason why some treatments don't work. We've touched on the barriers of race, gender, um, for research into female athletes. Are you able to share some advice with clinicians and researchers who may be trying to advance their career in sport or academia? Uh, on a personal level, of course, I am going to, I'm going to fight. I am going to do whatever it is that I can to prove people wrong that, you know, just because I'm female does not mean I am not good at what I do. Just because I'm a black female, that doesn't mean that I am, uh, that I'm not good at what I do. But it is exhausting. It is emotionally and psychologically exhausting to be constantly on guard to constantly having to prove yourself. And I don't think many people, um, white males, white females, uh, you know, I don't think people in certain groups have to deal with that, that you already have the challenges of the job that you have to deal with. But over and above that, you have to constantly have to do twice as much just to get half the credit. You know, it's you constantly have to be carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders because in, in most instances, in most environments that I've been in, I have been the first female something or I've been the first black something or I've been the first um, black female something, you know. And as a result, some people hold you as the SI unit of, of, of everything. If you make a mistake, then that mistake becomes every female's mistake, everyone who comes after you. Or if you make a mistake, then it becomes every woman of color who comes. So you have this crushing feeling of inadequacy that is not entirely unfounded because the environment is doing a good job of giving you these signals, you know. But yeah. you then try to understand that these reasons have nothing to do with you. So I think that would then be my advice for females or women of color or you know anyone who wants to pursue a, a, a career in sports and exercise medicine that the environment is not exactly designed for your comfort uh, not that it's a good thing but as it stands the environment is not designed to accommodate you so the environment will be giving you signals every so often that you are not good enough as a female or you are not good enough as a person of color but one way or the other, we need to internalize that these have nothing to do with our inherent abilities, that whatever the environment is saying probably has nothing to do with you. Do you know what I mean? It will still take a bit of time and effort to be confident in your abilities, 
and to not exceedingly and repeatedly bash yourself for mistakes because the environment is going to wait for you to make the tiniest mistake and then bash you for that and then use your gender or your race or whatever as a reason for, you know, this is why we don't have them because, you know, these female commentators are no good. This is why we don't have people of color in this environment because they are no good, you know. So I think at some point, it took a while. This, this has been happening over centuries. It took a while to get us here. So we need to be kind to ourselves and understand that it is also going to take a while to undo, um, uh, to undo those feelings of, of, of inadequacy. What about for people that are in, say, those sporting clubs and they're well-established and, you know, there might be a young female um, physiotherapist or doctor coming through the ranks and, you know, how mm-hmm. can those people in those positions support them in their journey? Making the effort, like um, a concerted, a deliberate effort to make their voice heard. Because I think so often, uh, especially with nowadays, we have equity, diversity and inclusion um, quotas to fill, or we we have these objectives because the parent organization says you're going to need um, 30% representation of females, or you're going to need 20% representation of youth and so forth. And I think so often people who are in positions of power then just, you know, recruit your 30% females, 20% youth, and then they think that is done. But I think we need to make a concerted effort to to include them. And that concerted effort may be something as simple as trying to understand the barriers that they are going to face in trying to do said job. So for instance, if um, if you have a female physiotherapist, she might be, now that you have a female physiotherapist, you get to look good because you get to say you have a female physiotherapist, but then she might have to deal with a bit of harassment or a lot of harassment from the players, from the other coaching staff, from the fans. But if we then don't do something about ensuring that she gets to work in an environment that is safe, that does not encourage her to stay. That does not encourage her to bring in other people. That does not make her stay uh, comfortable. That does, that does not make allow her to do the job to the best of her abilities. Some fantastic advice. To finish off, can you provide some key takeaways for clinicians, academics, or even sport and exercise medicine organisations to be able to improve equity, diversity and inclusion in their settings? First, we need to acknowledge our biases, unconscious or otherwise. We we may not want to accept it because it's not politically correct to accept it out loud, that we have particular biases, that the moment you see um, a non-Anglo-Saxon sounding name, your first instinct is, ugh, you know, we need to acknowledge those biases. If Well, it doesn't need to be public, you know, that acknowledgement, it, it's to ourselves that as let's say um, a journal, before you reject a manuscript or as a funding organization, before you reject uh, a grant application or if it's a a conference presentation because it is not relevant, perhaps let's take a breath and stop for a second to acknowledge that relevance is relative, that something that is irrelevant to you 
may be very relevant to someone else. To acknowledge that because of our uh, ingrained biases and the ways that we were raised and the environments that we grew up in, um, we are going to have certain biases and certain ways of thinking about life. So I think if we at least first of all acknowledge that, um, that would be a start, you know. It's if we need to intentionally look out for these biases in our decision-making processes, if you're going to be, um, if you are a person in, in you know, with the, with the power to, you know, let's say you're the editor or you are the scientific advisor for that organization and you are the one who's making decisions on, 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 on research studies or grant applications. Um, secondly, I think we need to interact we live in our echo chambers, you know, blissfully unaware of what other people are doing. Um, so we don't know how the clinicians in Indonesia are coping. We don't know how the physiotherapist in Uruguay is doing. We don't know how the physiotherapist or the doctor in Lusaka is doing. And because we stay in that bubble, we don't know how we can benefit from other people. And I think if we were to interact with people who are not the same as us in whatever respect, if we were to interact in, you know, to intentionally make the effort to interact in professional, personal settings with the other person, quote unquote, other person, we might be able to um, start improving on, um, uh, on how to, to, to be more equitable and to be more diverse and inclusive in our thinking. Do you know what I mean? So if we intentionally reach out to those who are unlike us, we stand to gain better perspectives of their lived experiences. Uh, and if one is then in a position of power, that experience and that knowledge of quote unquote the other can help with, with decision-making. Um, because otherwise living in these echo chambers, we, we keep getting the same feedback from the people who are like us. And that just perpetuates the gulf because I'm just going to be communicating with my Zimbabwean, South African, Malawian people, and you are communicating with your Australian, New Zealand people, and then someone else is communicating with, you know, uh, with Chile and Brazil and, and Uruguay, and no one gets to, you know, to, to, to interact with the other person. And what that means is when you feel like a collaboration on a study or research or whatever it is, the, your first instinct is not to think, I wonder what perspectives the African person would add to this or what perspective someone from South America would add to this. Your intention or your, your, your first instinct is to think, okay, I'm just gonna call up what's the name from that other university, which is essentially you know, next to me. So I think we need to make a, 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 an intentional effort to reach out to people who are unlike us because I think that we stand to, to, be, to be enriched. And lastly, um, I think it is not enough to just say 20% of uh, the, the people in this group are going to be female or 20% of these people are going to be male or they're going to be youth or whatever it is. I think we need to also understand that in addition to them not being included in a particular environment, they're also going to be structural um, things that preclude them from participating as well. So much as you can say that uh, we have 20% representatives, you have 20% representation from a minority group, and then you fail to acknowledge that um, 
in addition to them not being there, you also have, they also might have financial issues or they might have uh, economic issues, which even though they are part of the group, they cannot participate fully. So one, let's give an example of, let's say conferences. One could be organizing a conference on, I don't know, um, ACL injuries. And then one could say 20% of, uh, of, um, of participants have to be from low and middle income countries. Okay, so it's well and good that I now have uh, the conference. Uh, now I can attend the conference, but can I afford to pay for the conference is the other thing. Uh, so yes, you have said 20% of attendees have to be from low and middle income countries, but I may not be able to afford the 200 euro, 300 euro to register for the conference. And once that is done in the pre-COVID years, then I may not have the money to uh, travel to said conference, or I may not be able to, if you are me or traveling on a Zimbabwean passport, travel is much more than just getting on a plane. It means I have to go and apply for visas and all of those things. So if we are going to say we are trying to um, be inclusive and be more diverse, we also then need to go, you know, like backstage and look at these tiny little things. So yes, you can say, you're welcome to come to Australia for this conference, but you can't tell me about it two weeks before because, you know, again, as a Zimbabwean, I'm going to need to apply for a visa for that. So inclusivity and diversity and equity means then taking that into account when you make the decision and letting me know six months in advance so that I can actually be able to get all of those things done. It might also mean now, again, with the pandemic, we know that we don't need to be at a place in person. It means that person from a low income country may be able to attend the conference virtually. So they still get to participate in the conference, even though they don't, even if they don't need to be there in person because they may not afford to, the flights. Or it might mean waiving the fees, uh, conference fees for certain conferences for particular groups of people. And I think that way, those tiny little efforts to actually go behind the curtain and not just focus on these numbers that I have 30 uh, minority participants and therefore I am done. Taking the effort to peek under the hood and see uh, the little things that might actually be barriers or enablers to their participation, um, I, think, I think would help. And I know I said lastly, but I think this is my last one. Um, I think mentorship, I, I, I don't know. I think mentorship really helps. Having all you need sometimes is the one person who is in a position of power or who has experience or who has knowledge to guide you through it. And sometimes we lack it. And I think, um, I think BGSM is, is, is trying to, to do that now to have this global mentorship, to have this global mentorship program that you know you might have these ideas that you think are the bee's knees, but you don't know where to take them and in what form. And all you need sometimes is just the one person who sits at some board or the one person who has had 40 years of experience doing this to guide you. I don't think I would be where I am today if I hadn't had those mentors. I wouldn't have uh, represented my country at the Olympics if in the first instance, I didn't have the two male physiotherapists at my first football club who were willing to guide me along as their intern. I wouldn't 
be on this podcast if someone hadn't taken a chance on me and decided to listen to what I have to say, ramblings and all, I wouldn't have, um, there are some studies that I have conducted recently that whose money and funding I wouldn't have had if someone hadn't taken a chance to, you know, actually read my email and see what I was trying to talk about. So I think sometimes uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion comes in those forms. It comes in the form of someone saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to take a chance on you. Or someone saying, um, I may not be able to help you, but I know someone else who might, you know, and not just saying um, we are going to have 30% inclusion, understanding that I might need to have my hand held and guided in a particular direction. Thank you, Nonsansa. It's been great to chat to you. As always, thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast. Uh, if you want to contact Nonsansa or read some of her work, check out the show notes. If you're willing to help as a mentor in the BJSM Global Mentoring Program, you can submit a short statement of interest with your areas of expertise to BJSM Global Mentoring at bmj.com. And interested mentees can submit a short description of their proposed study and the specific areas you could use assistance. It may be study design, data analysis, or manuscript writing. So the program does not provide funding, but will connect potential mentees to voluntary mentors with shared interests to answer important questions in the areas of the world where resources and support are not necessarily equal. And you can find out more information through the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast and as always, have a physically active day.